Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Uh, I'm a bad person. Look, I admit it. I, I am a terrible person. I'm a bad American. I'm an unengaged citizen because you know why? I didn't watch the uh, Democratic uh, 10 of the Democratic presidential hopefuls debate last night. And I know it's look, this is all the buzz on social media. This is what uh, mainstream media is all over. Well, you know, the first Democratic debate took place. Oh, this is great. And I'm going to talk about it this morning. I'm going to talk about it today just because I... I know that there's a lot of interest. So whether it's my interest or not, that's irrelevant. I had better things to do, but it's it's worth hitting a few high points here. And I, and I hope what I share with you is is somewhat useful. But I've got to confess right out of the gate here, I just don't see anything changing with politics as usual. And and you know, I'm sorry. I, I apply that to the Republicans as well as the Democrats. In my estimation, what you had last night was 10 people pretending to be much further to the left than they actually are so that normal human beings will like them. By the way, Caitlin Johnstone did a beautiful parody of uh, the first Democratic debate summarized. And, and listen to the, the way she did this. She, she starts with one of, the, uh, one of the moderators, Savannah Guthrie, saying, Our first question is for Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren, you have many plans for America. Many, many plans. Is this correct? To which Elizabeth Warren says, yes, that is correct. I have many plans to make things better, and Americans must come together and work together as Americans to make America, America. Thank you, says Savannah Guthrie. Congressman O'Rourke, how do you feel about taxing the wealthy? To which Beto O'Rourke says, me gustaría informar a todos de que puedo hablar español. Savannah Guthrie, uh, okay. And Cory Booker chimes in, hey, I can speak Spanish, too. And this is kind of the gist of how the Democratic debate went last night. Now, she actually goes through a whole bunch of it, and it's it's uh, quite amusing. But I, I just I'm going to ask you to consider this as, as we head into, you know, as the election cycle comes, you know, into its own and, you know, the, the process starts to get more intense. And now I've got people contending one way or the other. Pay attention to how many people are saying anything that remotely resembles the language of liberty and limited government and free enterprise and personal responsibility. I'm trying to remember the quote. I think it was H.L. Mencken who talked about something about if you take 10 politicians running for office, nine times out of 10, what they promise their constituents is a lie. It's something they're never going to have to deliver on. And that 10th time, when they do actually deliver, they do it by taking from somebody else to give to the people that they've made these promises to. And I, I believe the quote he said is, every election is, is kind of like an advance auction on stolen goods. Now, that may strike you as cynical, but I find nothing in his analysis to disagree with. So this is one of the reasons why I... I personally just don't have a lot of interest in what's happening politically other than the entertainment value. And, and Caitlin Johnstone, I tip my hat to you. This is pure gold. What were some of the other ones here? Let's see. Uh, 
uh, Savannah Guthrie. Okay, yes, yes, you can both speak Spanish. The next question is for Senator Warren. Senator, you have many plans for America. Do you think rich people should be allowed to feast on the flesh of poor people? Elizabeth Warren, no, we should stop allowing rich people to eat poor people because there are laws against this, and my plan is to enforce those laws. Now Julian Castro speaks up. I can actually speak Spanish better than anyone here, so I pretty much win this debate. Cory Booker chimes in. Yeah, well, I live in a poor neighborhood. John Delaney starts to speak. Well, I think, and Lester Holt butts in. You shut your mouth, Delaney. Senator Warren, we haven't heard from you in a while. You've got lots of plans for America. Do you believe every American should have health care? And, and on they go. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you a little excerpt here from, uh, from John Stossel. John Stossel is remarkable in that he can really zero in on, on uh, the, the gist of what's at stake here. Listen to the 2020 candidates' worst and best ideas, according to Stossel. For president. For president of the United States. For president of the United States. Lots of people want to be president. It's going to be so much easier the second time. I'm repulsed by lots of politicians. They pander to get our attention. A new moon slide. All right. Mayor Pete. To the road A former prosecutor laughs with radio hosts while lying about the music she liked in college. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, definitely Snoop. Uh-huh. Uh, Tupac. But Snoop and Tupac didn't even perform when she was in college. And when they did, she was busy imprisoning people on pot charges. Abraham Lincoln complained that politicians are driven by a voracious desire for office. Well, that's not better today. Not only are they mad for power, they push bad ideas. So here are some of the current candidates' worst. Are you ready for the post office to go into banking? Bernie Sanders claims the Postal Service can make billions of dollars a year by establishing basic banking services. Really? The people who mishandle mail? Oh my God, are you kidding me? The post office just lost another billion dollars. Now they're going to manage our money? Sanders also wants a ban on for-profit charter schools. Why? Sanders has said, I believe we do have a moral obligation to lift up the poorest people. But Sanders would freeze funding for even nonprofit charters, like this one that helps kids succeed after government schools failed. Reading is work, but it's rocking awesome. Sanders should listen to his colleague Cory Booker. When people tell me they're against school choice or charter schools, I look at them and say, as soon as you're telling me you're willing to send your kid to a failing school in my city, then I'll be with you. Sensible. But unfortunately, that was years ago. Now that Booker's a Democratic candidate, he's quiet about school choice. Instead, he wants the government to guarantee everyone a job and to pay many people's rent. We're going to have a very aggressive renter's credit. The bad ideas keep coming. Senator Gillibrand wants to force everyone to buy fertility treatment insurance. Real structural change. Elizabeth Warren plans to change all kinds of things. The cancellation of student loan debt of up to $50,000. She'd also ban all oil and gas drilling on federal land. Our very existence is at stake. Closing that pay gap. Kamala Harris wants companies to prove they pay men and women equally. There will be penalties if they don't. But salaries vary for lots of reasons, unrelated to sexism. 
President Harris would also censor the Internet. We will hold social media platforms accountable for the hate infiltrating their platforms. That sounds nice, but if politicians get to decide what's hate, they'll censor any idea they don't like. The First Amendment is one of the defining features of who we are. Good for Joe Biden for saying that. But he's got bad ideas, too. College should be free. Free? College has already jacked up tuition much faster than the rate of inflation because taxpayers subsidize too much of college. China. 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 The Republican frontrunner has bad ideas, too. Our trade deficit in goods with the world last year was nearly $800 billion. We lost on just trade $800 billion. No, Mr. President, we didn't lose $800 billion. The trade deficit just means foreigners sent us $800 billion more goods than we sent them. We got products. In return, they got this paper, which they'll invest in the U.S. So that's good for us. It's not a problem. No, it's crazy what they're saying. So many different things. Fortunately, the incumbent has some good ideas, too. We eliminated 30,000 pages of job-killing regulations from the Federal Register. Now the president says he wants to shrink the code to its 1960 size. This shows how many rules we're burdened by now. Some Democrats also say sensible things. Mayor Pete Buttigieg criticizes his opponents for their college for all freebie. I have a hard time getting my head around the idea that uh, a majority who earn less because they didn't go to college would subsidize a minority uh, who earn more. And all the candidates could learn from Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. She served in Iraq and says she knows the costs of war. I will end the regime change wars, taking the money that we've been wasting on these wars and weapons and investing it in serving the needs of our people. But sadly, she wouldn't give the money back to the people. She wants to spend it on other big government programs. All the candidates have bad ideas, but some are worse than others. Let us know in the comments below who you think has the best and worst ideas. I love how my friend Connor Boyack summed it up. Which one would be worst for liberty? And his answer is all of the above. So this is what I mean when I say, we, you know, the candidates, and I'm talking Republican and Democrat alike, they don't speak the language of limited government. They don't understand the very purpose for which government is instituted is to keep us free. And it does that best by staying out of the way until it's absolutely necessary and only coming into play when... There's a wrong that needs to be corrected, and I mean a verifiable wrong. Anyway, what a great way to start. We'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Please let this be a real headline. I know, with, with all the fake news floating around out there, you, the, you think a bad story might slip through. But the headline says, man who robbed a bank to get away from wife, sentenced to home confinement. <laughs> ah, justice is served. <laughs> okay, a couple of housekeeping things here as we move along. It is, uh, this is Thursday, so we are one week away from Independence Day. You notice I didn't call it the 4th of July? 
I actually had a great conversation with uh, my friend Connor Boyack and uh, Professor Kevin Gutzman yesterday about uh, about Independence Day, which, by the way, is actually July 2nd. I know I'm going to be one of those guys who insists, hey, we're celebrating on the wrong day. Even John Adams told his wife, Abigail, in a letter, July 2nd will be the day we remember and we memorialize this incredible event of declaring our independence. And yet, uh, nope, we celebrate independence on the 4th. And it's interesting how many people call it the 4th. But my point here is simply to tell you that on July 4th, as we celebrate Independence Day, you are invited to come and join us at Liberty Hall. Now, this is in far west Utah. It is, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to give you directions. How do you get there? Um, I guess your, your best bet is simply to to recognize that it is uh, just down the road from Smith and Edwards, and it's a remarkable opportunity to come and and celebrate. And, and I don't just mean, you know, hey, hot dogs and popcorn, and, you know, uh, songs and so forth. That's that's a part of it. But more important than how we go about celebrating it is we're going to be focusing on the why we celebrate Independence Day. So the address is 3677 North Highway 126, Far West, Utah, 84404. You'll probably want to write this down when I say it once more so you can get it in your GPS. But you can hear patriotic music from Radiant Productions. These are kids, and and I'm telling you, they just, they put heart and soul into the music that they perform. It's absolutely beautiful. Ben Franklin will be there to talk about the Declaration of Independence. The Ben Franklin. Don't ask me how we got it. We had to pull some favors from pretty high up, but he's going to be there. We'll also be screening a more perfect union with free hot dogs and popcorn. And this whole celebration is taking place between noon and 2 p.m. So whatever other plans you have, you want to catch a parade in the morning, you want to make sure you're free for the fireworks in the evening, you can do that. But I want you to know this is your invitation to join us for a grand old celebration of Independence Day at Liberty Hall Here's the address, 3677 North Highway 126 in far west Utah, 84404. By the way, Sam Bushman, who you can hear with the Liberty Roundtable Report uh, uh, twice daily here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, you can, uh, you can come and meet him. He's going to be there along with his family. And I will be there as well, celebrating and having fun. By the way, all proceeds will benefit Follow the Flag, and this is sponsored by Loving Liberty. Okay, I think I covered that part. Oh, here is something else I wanted you to know about. Um, Joe Carey, today we will be doing a best of Joe Carey show, but this is one that you really need to listen to because uh, last Friday he had the opportunity to interview Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan is the uh, president of Medici Ventures, and he is a remarkable expert when it comes to cryptocurrencies and and, uh, emerging currencies. And they talk about uh, the new Facebook currency or a digital currency that's going to be coming out. And he takes such a complex issue and, and puts it into terms even I can understand. So that's coming up at noon Mountain Time today. Also, I'm going to use this one to springboard into the, to my next topic. Do not miss the Liberty Effect with Ammon Bundy at 1 o'clock Mountain Time this afternoon. Ammon will be talking about nationalism. And I got to tell you that... Uh, his take on this, I've watched him actually uh, debate this back and forth on Facebook. You know, he took a break from Facebook here uh, for several months. 
after he had uh, gone on the record saying, look, I don't think we should be treating, you know, these these immigrants coming across our southern border like insects. Now, he wasn't saying, you know, therefore, you know, we should just, you know, let the MS-13 gang members and the drug runners have free reign across our borders. He never said that. But he was cautioning people about getting all wrapped up in nationalistic tendencies to where you stop seeing others as human beings. And he took a lot of heat for it. There were a lot of people who said, you know, Ammon, we stood up for you. We stood up for your family. You stuck a knife in our back when you questioned our president. And see, he'd warned about that, too, about uh, the idea that, look, when you start looking at, a, at the president as a demigod of some sort, you're, you're treading on pretty thin ice. Not in a political sense, but just as a human being. I promise you that if you tune into his show today, you are going to hear. You're going to hear some really powerful, well-spoken truth, and you may not agree with it. There's always that possibility. But I'll tell you, Ammon is coming at this from, I believe, the right place. I think his heart is exactly where it needs to be, and I think that people need to hear and at least consider his message. Whether they make it their own or not, that is their choice. But there's something that is happening in this nation, and I think fear is a big part of it. I think fear is what drives, you know, a lot of the debate about our southern border. Fear that uh, they're coming here to take our jobs. Fear they're bringing drugs. Fear they're sex trafficking children. Fear, fear, fear. We've got to do something. And I see people willingly wanting to, to, they aspire to live in a gigantic open air prison as defined by impenetrable border walls, which they say are essential to liberty. I think one of my favorite excuses is when uh, we understand there are a lot of people who want to come here. But you know what? These people aren't ready to handle freedom. They don't know how to handle freedom. Which makes me want to say, yeah, that that moat in their eye, these folks who are coming from, you know, El Salvador or Mexico or Guatemala or wherever. Yet they don't know how to handle freedom. I can see where that moat in their eye is really bothering you. So tell me again, how well are we handling freedom? Or is the beam in our own eyes making it a little bit hard to, to see exactly how well we're doing? I'm sorry, this one, this one inflames me just a little bit. I, I get a little bit passionate. The idea that, well, you know, these people can't handle freedom like we can. Um, excuse me, but we are squandering and we are peeing away the most incredible birthright that any people on earth have ever had the blessing or privilege to enjoy. And we don't even know it. We're not even because we're not even connected with it. Well, you know, that was good for 200 years ago, but it's a whole different world. Well, sure enough, then we probably ought to junk all those principles and all those lofty ideals about liberty and about free travel or free migration. Yeah, we should do that. Focus on our own, you know, policies here like uh, let's keep that welfare state going. Look, I don't think there are any easy answers, but I, but I know that correct principles are the best place to start. One of those correct principles would be starting with is government acting in its proper role. Now, I'm not just referring to the welfare state, which I believe is government acting well beyond its role. But I'm also referring to the idea that the federal government has now uh, assumed authority that was not explicitly given to it in the Constitution to regulate immigration. Look, when you go from state to state, I drive to Idaho to go visit my dear old gray-haired mama. 
And I cross a sovereign border every time I do it. And you know what? I don't have to stop and ask for permission. There isn't a checkpoint to vet me and make sure, now, why are you coming to Idaho? What is your business here? Are you smuggling children? Are you smuggling drugs? There's none of that. Now, of course, it'd be different if I was a commercial driver, but that's another story for another time. Crossing a nation's border should be about that big of a deal. And before you, you know, have the knee-jerk reaction, well, but it will let all the undesirables in. So how do you know an undesirable? Can you tell by the color of their skin, the accent that they speak in? How do you know someone is undesirable? To me, the most objective way to tell is their behavior. So if a person wants to freely migrate or travel and their behavior is peaceful and they're not imposing themselves on someone else financially or otherwise, I think they ought to be free to do that. But the fear that lurks in a lot of people's hearts says otherwise. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Set me straight. 801-331-8113. We'll be back after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Yes, it is entirely possible that I have gone off my rocker. Look, I I freely admit I could be wrong about uh, some of the stuff I'm talking about, especially when it comes to when it comes to the borders. I hear people say, well, you're in favor of open borders. And, And I'll tell you, I am. But that's not the same thing as no borders. And that's not the same thing as I embrace the new world order. You can still have sovereign borders, as I referenced in the last segment. Um, Every state that you visit has sovereign borders. You cross a line, you are subject to their state laws. That's just how it works. But it's open. And you freely cross back and forth and nobody really gives a rip unless your behavior is somehow harming another person. But for some reason, you know, when we start talking about the others, the people down at the southern border, that uh, that causes a little disconnect. And and, and I'm going to go fully off into the weeds here. So, you know, just be warned. This this is where I, I may absolutely lose you. But I'm going to put my heart out there and uh, let the chips fall where they may. If If this is just too much, then OK. Maybe maybe I am just, uh, you know, a hopeless, you know, idealist. But I'm thinking back to a recent conversation I was having with, with Ammon Bundy about this, this very subject. And something that struck me is the, the consistency in Ammon's message. People accused him of, well, you've turned, you've changed. And I'm here to tell you, Ammon has never been an advocate for, hey, we've got to keep these people out or we've got we to centralize more government power over us to protect us you know, from the others. His message has been first and foremost that the source of freedom is God. Now, if you're not a believer, I understand that can present a little bit of a dilemma. So, you know, it's, this, this isn't to impose. You must, you know, be in Sunday school next Sunday or else. But just the idea that if, as Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence suggested, that our rights are endowed by our creator, that sets the entire tone 
for why government exists and, and the purpose that we call it into existence. If our rights are given to us by our creator, meaning they are inalienable, they are natural, they are an essential part of us and every other human being on the face of the earth. Yeah, I know, not just Americans, but everybody. And the reason for government is to protect and guarantee those rights. Then that clearly establishes that our rights don't come from government. Because the flip side of this coin is if you say, well, no, actually, you know, government determines what our rights are and how far they go, then uh, be prepared. Because as soon as somebody comes along with a persuasive enough argument to get them into power, then your rights are subject to their whim, to their ideals. As John Stossel pointed out in the first uh, segment of the show today, people who want to ban hate speech. People who want to censor ideas that they don't agree with. That's exactly what they'll do is they'll try to shut down anything with which they don't agree. And it's a purely subjective call on their part. Now, on the other hand, if your rights are an inseparable part of your identity as a human being. Then that means that there are limits to which government can exercise power over you. That's what real rights do. That's what natural rights do. They limit the power of government over us. But instead, people today are just arguing over, well, we need more government because we need it to protect us from them. And it's very fear driven. It's very enemy driven. And what pains me is it's good people that are falling prey to this fear. Now, here's an example. So something that's been making the rounds here for the last few days, and, and I'll grant you, the media is milking this for all it's worth. The image of a young child drowned with her father lying on the banks of the Rio Grande. It's a pretty tragic picture. It's, it's sad, no matter how you look at it. And, and I absolutely believe that uh, much of the legacy media is milking it for all the sympathy and all of the emotional leverage that they, that they can get out of it. But as distasteful as that is, you know what is worse to me? Are the people on the other side of the equation, the people who ideologically say, well, but this would never have happened if they had just followed the law and come through the proper channels to get to America. I want to talk about modern day Pharisees and people hiding behind the skirts of the letter of the law. We cannot feel pity or sympathy for them because, well, we know that this is just a ploy to make us accept more of them coming over here to our beloved country where they will just pollute it like so many insects. Here's the problem. We're substituting a political religion for real religion. Our faith in politics is stronger than our faith in God. Do you know why I say that? Because if our faith in God was as strong as we'd like to think it is, we would be much more concerned about living as good Christians or good whatever, you know, your, your belief system is. We would be concerned about treating others as children of God and concerned for their welfare in the same way that Jesus told us to be concerned for them. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is an excellent example of this. Even the people who technically 
we would be at odds with because there's been a beef between their people and our people or there's different customs or whatever. Whatever it was, the Samaritan had every excuse to ignore the injured guy laying beside the road. And the fact that other people, pious people, righteous people in the eyes of society, passed him by without helping further drives home the point. If you're going to follow God, you've got to be willing to exercise a little bit of faith. And sometimes that means taking an unpopular stance. And I believe that's what Hammond Bundy is doing. But I believe it's absolutely consistent with his faith in God. Now, my take on this is in the long run, and I mean the long run in the broadest possible sense. What's going to make the biggest difference in our destinies individually and also as a society is not how politically adept we were and how politically skilled we were at getting our way. It's going to be what kind of people were we? What kind of lives did we live? I'm going to use the term godly. People who honestly strive to live godly lives quickly come to find that the first and perhaps most difficult requirement of doing so is humility. And if you can't find that humility or meekness of heart, and by the way, politics does not reward humility or meekness of heart. It looks at it as a weakness. Pragmatists dismiss it as, well, you'll never win an election like that. As if that's the most important thing in the world. And that's what I'm asking you to consider. Is that short-term political victory really the most important thing in the world? Or is there something larger that's at stake? And I'm sorry, for those of you who are are not uh, of any particular faith, I'm not trying to marginalize you or shut you out from this conversation. But I'll tell you, for for those who do have a belief system, for those who do consider themselves themselves people of faith... It's really important that we consider what are we willing to give up in the eternal sense just to gain some kind of a short-term temporal victory that isn't even going to matter two years from now, four years from now. I think that's the toughest thing that God asks of any of us is to be consistent. And, and here's, here's the kicker. In my opinion but also in my experience. If you are honestly striving to live a godly life, and maybe I could simplify this by just saying, if you're you're trying to live the golden rule, since that seems to be the the basis, the basic premise or the basic um, underlying commandment of all of the world's major religions, what you would not want done unto you, don't do that to other people. If you can live by those rules, what's happening politically really doesn't matter because in the long run, you are doing your part to live up to the reasons for which God created you. But fear is such a powerful tool and it causes people to set aside those lofty principles because, well, we all know we'll just have somebody run right over us. 
Well, I'm going to ask you to consider where where did the founders of this nation? I mean, come on, we're going to celebrate our independence here in a week. Where did the founders put their faith? Have you ever read their writings? Have you ever seen what the spirit of the American Revolution was in terms of the spirituality that was behind their cause? Look, there was serious moral truth at stake. But they were striving to be the kind of people who were on God's side, not just to win some political victory. All right, I'll jump off the soapbox. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Hopefully I haven't uh, offended or driven too many people to the margins with my absolutely unhinged commentary today. But these are a few things I've really needed to get off my chest. And, And I want you to understand, I'm not trying to call you to repentance so much as I'm recognizing how I have needed the, the, to be called to repentance on these very issues myself. I've made a very conscientious effort over the last few years to try to eliminate as much fear as possible as a driving dynamic in my life. And in so doing, that has, in, in my experience, it has allowed me to uh, draw closer to my creator, to, to more clearly recognize the things that actually matter in life. And I'm going to confess right now, politics is not the most important thing. But that's hard to tell, right? During election cycles, when you get the election rallies, all the political ads and the emotional campaigning, I think sometimes it's really easy to forget why our governing systems exist in the first place. And at their most basic, look, the government exists to make and enforce rules governing human conduct. Now, that sounds noble and it sounds lofty, but it also means every rule or every individual policy carries some form of punishment that can be used to deprive an individual of his life, liberty, or property. Now, as voters, we bear personal responsibility for how government behaves as our agent. So when government becomes abusive, it's because the voting public has allowed it to do so through the people they elect. I like how my friend Eric Peters puts it. He says, remember that what we call the government is just us collectively. We elect representatives. They pass laws. But ultimately, the government is no wiser or more righteous than each of us individually. This is one of the reasons why the nation's founders placed very strict limits upon government power and actually spelled out exactly what it should be allowed to do, keeping everything else off limits to it. Unfortunately, human nature is pretty consistent in how most men react to being given power. Those who attain some degree of authority tend to use that power to force other people to do as they demand. And when you combine this tendency with the coercive power of government, people become busybodies with no sense of personal responsibility or conscience. And that's why politics tends to draw moths or draw power seekers like moths to a porch light. So if you're going to participate, if you if you are planning on voting, one of the essential things is you have to be able to differentiate between those who are power seekers and those who would instead serve the people who elect them. That is, if you want to be a responsible voter. Personally, I have zero problem with people who say I won't vote. 
I refuse to vote because I don't want to lend legitimacy to the system that's doing its best to separate me from my rights. I can respect that. And that doesn't mean I'm telling you, therefore, you should not vote either. It's just, I get it. That's, that's a conscientious withholding or a vote of no confidence by refusing to vote for whatever choices are proffered them. Personally, I'm kind of a fan of writing in names. And I know it may sound immature. Maybe it's, oh, well, look at you just grandstanding here. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm forcing the system to acknowledge as it round files my vote that it really doesn't trust me to vote. It can't count my vote. Why? Because you didn't choose from the choices that were on the ballot. Maybe those choices weren't uh, either one of them appealing to me. Maybe none of them met the minimum standard for what I could give my vote to or my support to in good conscience. So, yeah, I forced the system to throw my vote out as a demonstration of how, yeah, it can't handle my vote. (laughs) You won't really, you don't want uh, my input, really. You want me to choose from a false choice. And maybe that's a game I don't want to play. Look, as a general rule, we always should be wary of candidates who are just a little too eager to exercise political power over others. And likewise, the ones who promise to use that power to bring home favors to those who elect them, they're typically doing that for self-serving reasons. So if a candidate can't think of a single issue in which he or she would say, you know, government has no business interfering in that matter, then they don't understand the proper limits of government. And that's Democrats and Republicans alike. Plus, you have to factor in power seekers are masters of telling people what they want to hear. And that means we've got to be willing to get beyond the simplistic campaign slogans, the bumper stickers, and determine whether a candidate's words and actions actually align with sound principles. But the only way to reliably sift the power-seeking opportunists from the ones who actually would be selfless leaders starts with an electorate that understands the principles and practices of freedom. Maybe there's some other avenues that are worth exploring as well. I like the idea that my friend Farley Anderson suggested. He says maybe we'd be better served if a committee of neighbors were to come together, independent of party, and deliberate who would best represent us in public office. And then that committee could approach the man or woman in whom they have confidence, knock on their door, and ask that person to represent them for one term. They might say, you didn't ask for this position, but... We have been talking. We feel that you are a person of integrity. We will do your campaigning for you. Now, for the person, you know, for the person who's being asked to be a candidate, that might feel more like they're being drafted rather than trying to convince voters, hey, let me rule over you. But that would be a much less self-serving approach than most political campaigns today. I mean, can you see the difference between voters who exercise their voices in this way versus being persuaded into throwing their support behind some power seeker? Public service should be just that service, not entitlement. One of the best examples of this was what happened to George Washington following the ratification of the Constitution and the founding of our federal system of government. Now, remember, Washington had already given many years of service to his country. He had sacrificed at a level that I think few of us can understand. And he definitely, if you have read his writings, he would have preferred to stay home, read his books, and tend to his gardens. 
but the people around him knew his leadership could be trusted. And that's why they begged him to work on their behalf. And reluctantly, he did. And what that particular kind of leadership denotes is an almost forgotten concept known as public virtue. In which a person willingly sacrifices comfort and time and effort without any thought of their personal gain. Try translating that into politics. Can you imagine political service being a time of sacrifice that primarily benefits others and not the person who holds office? It's kind of like the person who puts in the backbreaking work of planting trees with the understanding that they won't be the one enjoying the shade or the fruits 40 years down the road. Power seekers won't do that kind of work. But people who are service-oriented will, and it's in our best interest as voters to recognize the power seekers for what they are and refuse to reward them. But that can only happen when we understand that every one of us has a personal moral responsibility for what government does in our names, and that the same moral laws apply to individual action as to when men act in concert. Now, I promise you this, as election campaign 2020 gets into full swing, the fear factor is going to be dialed up to 11. And the big fear is going to be, well, we can't let the other side win. And boy, I'll tell you, from what I've seen of the highlights of the Democratic debate, whew, the plans they have for us, it's, it's pretty spooky. But you need to understand that our politics are corrupt, not just on the Democratic side. As you watch the Republicans and Democrats attack one another, you need to understand neither one of those parties possesses the slightest degree of moral authority or principle. Both parties exist for the purpose of getting people elected. And when they're criticizing each other, it's like watching a pile of manure criticize a puddle of vomit because you smell bad. Somehow you've got to be able to see the abandonment and betrayal of the American idea and ideals of individual rights and private property, free markets, impartial rule of law, constitutionally limited and restrained government. Because right now. We see people who are unprincipled and manipulative and power lusting and ruthless in their pursuit of their own gain with no respect or recognition of the rights of others. And it's happening in the entire political system of government. It's happening at all levels, federal, state, and local. As unpleasant as the reality of the uh, election cycle might be, at least it's giving us a very clear opportunity to admit where we really are as a nation, as a community, or maybe even as individuals. I think the best thing we can do is know with certainty who we are and what we stand for, and let every other thing flow from that. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 